This episode is brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. What are you sending your agents out in the field with? You know, the days of giving them that business card and telling them to wish them luck as they go out in the field, those days are over. You need to provide them with real marketing materials. How do you do that cost effectively when things are changing so rapidly? Well, at instantquotetool.com, we provide our ISOs with custom proposal templates where we make a completely customized PDF and web version proposal that has dynamically generated savings fields and other fields along with marketing materials. Head over to instantquotetool.com slash podcast in order to claim your free 30-day trial as an ISO client. We look forward to working with you. Hey everybody, I'd like to welcome you to this portion of our podcast. Today, I am joined by Sam Zeitz. He is the founder and CEO of TouchSuite. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing great. I'm here in the sunny South Florida. Oh, that's nice. I'm here in uh, Pennsylvania where it's about 25 degrees, so I'm a little jealous. <laughs> so, so Sam, I thought maybe we'd start out uh, by getting a little bit of your story. Um, how did you end up in this amazing industry? Uh, you know, How did that lead to TouchSuite? Maybe give us a little bit of background context, if you would. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. So uh, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I figured you needed one of two things. You either needed money or you needed know-how. Right. I didn't have any money, so I figured <laughs> I better go get some know-how. So I ended up going to uh, law school, and then uh, out of law school, ended up working at uh, Skadden Arts, it's a, a large law firm in New York. Okay. And they're so kind there that they, for every year you're there, they're kind enough to give you three years of experience. Because <laughs> they, they work you <laughs> Right. Well, in excess of 100 hours every week. So they were very, very kind. And <laughs> sure. uh, I was doing structured finance, which is securitizing income streams. Okay. And I thought to myself, you know, I think I need to go get one of these for myself. <laughs> and at the time, I actually had the idea to get into what is now the advanced space. Right. And I needed to secure, I had everything figured out, but I needed to securitize the credit card component. And a friend of mine introduced me to the payment space. And the more I, I learned about the payment space, to me it was very similar to the cell phone industry just 10 years earlier. So it was kind of right. like having a, a crystal ball on you know where everything was going to go. Sure. So uh, pivoted like any good entrepreneur would do and went down the, the path of, of the, the payment side of it. Later uh, got into the advanced business and then you know after analyzing our portfolio and seeing the most valuable accounts we had were were those merchants that had point of sale systems we said okay well how do we you know develop uh, right. you know a point of sale system so we can make it more affordable so more merchants have POS systems so right. that led to us creating a, a whole division on technology and in integrated payments and you know now we've Going down the, the path uh, with quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of different solutions that really provide real value, so that we can differentiate ourselves in what's you know a commoditized space and just payments. Sure. Now, now one thing that you mentioned there is you talked about kind of the advanced world and then payments and technology, and that's kind of a good segue for my next question because you know our listeners may not, you know, some of them know about TouchSuite and the other businesses, some don't. Can you kind of break that down a little bit? I know you have different business interests there, and you know different ISO and agent programs and stuff. I mean, what does the company do? What's kind of the official like name of the company? Give us a little bit of kind of the what you guys do uh, version of things here. 
Yeah, so, so TechSuite, at, at its core, our, our purpose statement is to empower entrepreneurs. Okay. So sure, you know, our, our and, you know, every one of our ultimate clients is a merchant. Right. And by default, an, an entrepreneur. But also, all of our sales partners, all the ISAs and agents that, that work with us are also entrepreneurs. Right. So, in, in, you know, I think a lot of that's being lost with some of the processors today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, there seems to be, you know, this this trend, and I'm, I'm not going to go out and bash any, any companies they, for the changing of philosophies, but, you know, there's a lot of them that are, you know, firing their ISO channel or right. not wanting to, to do business or, or making it prohibitive to, to do business. And we, to the contrary, you know, we embrace it. Sure. Uh, we, we're looking for ways... To, to make our partners more successful because, candidly, we just ride their coattails. Right. So the more successful I can help them become, the more successful we are by default. So, you know, we're able to invest in, in tools to, to do that. Uh, actually, we just got off of uh, our, our big event each year is uh, we run a sales competition in the, the, during football season. Okay. And the winners... Uh, our top offices all get flown down, and we go to the Orange Bowl. So we oh, go wow. on the field That's before awesome. the game, and they they get to meet the halftime artist, and we've got a great you know suite. So it's always a good weekend. You go to the coaches' luncheon, and they get to meet some of the players and coaches, and we have a we have a great time. So you know, another one of our core values here is around you know as uh, is. is Around sports, everybody's very competitive. Right. So you know, football is just like the natural tie-in of uh, of everybody that we kind of talk sure. a lot and give a lot of football analogies around here. So if, if for those out there that are are, are football fans, uh, you'll you'll fit in very well within our our organization. But uh, yeah, you know, what one follow-up on that too that's just so interesting to me as I've seen. Um, individuals like yourself that have built successful companies in the industry, one kind of common trend I've seen is that, you know, you're able to build a culture like a classic sales organization culture, like you mentioned this, you know, rewards trip, uh, you know, the competitive culture, all these things. But, you know, at the same time, these are independent contractors. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? What's what's the, that challenge like? I mean, how, how do you do that? How are you building this culture where you're making it a sales organization so the salespeople don't all feel like lone wolves, but at the same time, you know, they are independent and you're you're you know, promoting their entrepreneurial spirit? Well, you, you think about it, it's different. You, you got to treat your partners and your employees like you treat your, your customers because... You know, in this world, you, you, nobody has to work with you. You know, they can go anywhere they want. So, you know, if you're not showing them enough love, you know, someone else will. Right. And, you, know, you know, one of our core values are problems. And when there is a problem, such as, you know, other processors don't want to do business with ISAs and agents, or there's a trend towards that, that's to us is an opportunity right we we embrace it and you know we try you know even our our partners work together so it, it's funny we you get them together and, and they'll 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 share each other's secrets and, and help each other to 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 be successful it's almost sure. like a you know competition cooperation you know merger going on there and you know 
generally speaking, they're in different geographies. So even though they're in the same space, they, they don't mind sharing best practices and right. doing that. And we try to take the best from everybody and, and share it. And then everybody, you know, all tides kind of rise. Right. Um, and a lot of our, our best ideas for, for tools uh, come from the suggestions of our partners. And they're right. like, you know, what would, because we're constantly asking them, what would make it easier for you? How can we, you know, where, where are your pain points? And that's where we came up with like our simple sign up, which is our sales automation tools to, to make it simpler and easier uh, to, to board clients and for them to, to stay on top of their, their customers. So, you know, the more we can do to take things off of their plate so they can spend their time doing what they do best, which is their highest and best use and opportunity, the more successful they become. Sure. Um, you know, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting uh, about your company is, you know, the focus on technology. Um, you know, it's actually a little bit unusual because what I've seen is a lot of the, um, you know, uh, payment space companies that are more focused on technology, they seem to be trending more towards, you know, the W2 employees or the online marketing or whatever, you know, you look at Square, you know, they don't have a, a feet on the street, you know, that kind of thing. So how have you implemented that? How important is that to your model, the, the technology that you have? And how have you implemented that in a way where it's benefited your partners, but not overwhelmed them with complexity? Well, you know, the product itself needs to be intuitive enough so it doesn't require complex, mm. you know, you don't need, you don't want to have to force your partners to, to spend a year trying to figure out how to, to <laughs> right. use the equipment. So a lot of it starts at the design stage, so making it very, very intuitive. And really it's trying to solve real pain points. So instead of trying to build something and then telling the world they need it, find where the need is and then build a solution for it. Mm. Because if yeah. one person has a problem and you can solve it, typically there's a lot of other people with that same problem. Right. And a perfect example of that is we, we just did a, a large strategic investment in a company called Grubber. Okay. So Grubber is a, just a phenomenal platform which originated really in the restaurant space, but it has... Uh, application into a whole host uh, of, of other industries. But what's really differentiated them is, is their kiosk. So, you know, if you've been to a McDonald's recently, they right. spent over $100 million <laughs> developing this kiosk. Right. And it was funny, when during our due diligence, we actually sent, you know, our, our attorneys and, you know, finance people into the McDonald's to see <laughs> how the interaction was going there. Sure. And there'd be nobody at the counter and customers would walk in the door and instead of going to the counter to talk to the to the cashier, they'd walk right up to the kiosk. Right. So, you know, the number one pain point that that a lot of, you know, QSRs and even other industries, such as movie theaters, et cetera, have is labor. We we're at all time low on, on unemployment. You've got minimum wage you know, skyrocketing, you know, with states continuing to increase it. Right. So here you, the, their pain point is, one, you know, we, we can't find people. Right. And even if we can find them, we've got to pay them too much. And, and when we do, they're not reliable. Right. So, you know, typical, you know, if you take somebody at minimum wage working the hours that a typical, you know, fast food place, for example, is open – you're looking at about six thousand dollars a month to have a cashier there. 
Right. And for less than $300, you can replace that person. They'll never call in sick. They'll never make a mistake and generate 20% more in revenue right. because people will actually buy more and it perfectly upsells every time. So the value proposition is overwhelming. And for those that are concerned that all of a sudden, you know, people are completely eliminated, all this is really doing is forcing you to hire more chefs because now there's more food that needs to be produced for all the increased orders because people aren't walking away. Right. You know, we're talking to a number of NFL teams about putting it in in their stadiums. Why? Because everybody, you know, you go to a stadium and you look at it and say, okay, I want a beer, I want a pizza, and I want a hot dog. But they're at three different stands or two different stands, right? And I'm not—I can't stand, I can't get both the lines. Oh, and I want to go to the bathroom too before halftime's over. <laughs> so, uh, which you know, which one do I pick? Right. Uh, so here with the kiosk, you can put it in. It doesn't matter what stand has it. You can order it and then go pick it up, or the stadium can even arrange that to deliver it to your seat. So all of a sudden, anywhere there's a line, yeah. you're eliminating that line, right? And that in itself is dramatically improving sales because you're no longer losing those customers. Yeah, I feel like consumers, uh, myself included, are getting less and less patient, right? It's like, you know, I want to make my order. I don't want to stand in line. Like, let's get this over with. (laughs) You don't even want to talk to people. Take the the younger generation, right? The millennials, they don't even want to talk to people. So, you know, it's just in sales. Do people pick up a phone and call or they want to chat? Or, you know... Or are they texting instead of calling now? Right. Well, same thing. They, they, they know what they want. They don't want to talk to a person. They actually view people as friction who are, who are potentially going to make a mistake. Let me go in and let me order my, my salad and customize it the way I want it. And I know it's not going to get messed up. Sure. Sure. Okay. So let's do this. I want to shift gears a little bit. We've talked about kind of, you know, we've been zoomed out and talking about the big picture and, and the focus on technology for, you know, the merchants and things like that. Let's kind of zoom in and talk a little bit more in detail about, you know, agents and ISOs. Um, a couple of questions I had. So, so one of them is I, if I understand correctly, you guys have actually developed like a separate division or whatever in the company that handles uh, agent financing as far as, you know, buyouts, residual loans, things like that. Could you talk Absolutely. a little bit about that and why did you develop that? And, and as I understand it, I mean, that's like a separate division that an agent from any processor potentially could work with you guys, right? Absolutely. We have a, a sister company called Boca Capital Partners. Right. And it was designed to, to again, problems are opportunities. Right. And what is, you know, one of the biggest obstacles or barriers of entry to somebody in the payment processing space is it's a negative cash flow proposition. Right. So you're going to go spend a bunch of money to market or pay commissions to staff to originate a deal that you'll then get paid on every month until, you know, for years and years to come. But you're outlaying the money today. Right. So you've got a valuable, it's almost like you've got, you're, you're buying yourself an annuity. The problem is most businesses are undercapitalized or don't have the access to capital. Right. And the banks don't understand this. The right. banks, you know, if you fit within their box and you've got some inventory or you've got some equipment or, you know, right. you, you've got, you know, a building that they can lend against, great. But they'd look at it, I'll never forget, I talked to the bank early on in, in, in my career and I said, oh, at that time, you know, our residuals are, you know, $100,000 a month. 
And they're like, okay, so you've got 100,000 receivables and we'll lend you 80% of that. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm <laughs> like, well, we've got a $100,000 a month you know, recurring revenue stream. This is worth, you know, many, many, many times that. Right. And it's a liquid they, asset. Just, <laughs> exactly. I said, I don't have to worry about collection. I don't have, you know, it doesn't right. matter. So they, they just didn't get it. So because we understand that, we're able to, to provide uh, loans, whether they work with us and they're agents and ISOs of ours, or if they're just uh, you know another group all, all together. We understand the asset, and we lend, and, and we lend at very competitive rates, significantly lower than, than others who have been like specialty lenders in, in the space because, listen, at the end of the day, we, we understand the value of the collateral, and we don't believe there's the risk that that others who who just aren't as you know aware of the value of the asset right uh, place on it sure yeah and I think too it's interesting because you know the buyout versus the residual loan um, I think a lot of people in our industry um, especially agents that maybe are you know fifteen twenty thousand a month residual they're looking to grow and build a team a lot of times they don't understand that you know you can borrow against the residual they know you can sell it. Uh, the problem is when you sell it, then you don't have it anymore. <laughs> so sometimes it's a good deal if you get a good, you know, a good multiple, right? But but also I think it's interesting that agents really need to explore the the option of borrowing against the residual as well, right? Absolutely. And actually, I'm uh, I'm a tax attorney by by trade. I'll tell you, there's another hidden benefit <laughs> that applies sure. uh, on you know. Again, you'd have to you know, listeners would have to speak to their own, right. uh, you know kind of tax professionals or we'd be happy to discuss and tell their tax professionals how, you know, a couple ways to, to look at it. But generally speaking, you are able to take the money as debt and you can distribute it to yourself in a tax-free manner. Right. And that's a huge, huge advantage, which basically allows you to continue to grow and utilize those dollars that you would have paid in taxes to put back into your business to grow. And then ultimately, when you do pay taxes and you do sell your portfolio or if you sell your company, you convert it from ordinary into long-term capital gains. Right. So right. you're able to defer and, and then recharacterize, which are really two of the, the main tenets of, of proper tax planning. Yeah, the longer you hang on to that asset and uh, the growing asset, then uh, you know the, the better the tax implications usually. And I know it's funny, I actually... Uh, uh, now thinking back about six years ago, I made the exact mistake that you just mentioned, which is I you know wanted to start an ISO, so I sold a big portfolio. I got paid out uh, you know personally. Uh, then I started a separate company and like, oh, I'm just going to reinvest it over here because I'm going to lose it all, you know, as I start the ISO and not thinking about, oh, wait a second, I'm going to have to pay taxes on that <laughs> when I get it. And so, yeah, definitely. Uh, Surprise, for those, the IRS comes knocking. <laughs> yes, they do. And for quite a bit of money, actually, as well. So, uh, yeah, for those <laughs> listening, this is a, a great tip uh, for sure. So, okay, so you have the, the financing option. Uh, let's talk about the agent program as well. So, you know, what's kind of your pitch? I mean, you know what's out there. You know the agent programs that are out there. Again, a lot of good companies and things like that. Um, why do uh, agents and, and small offices and ISOs, why do they come and partner with your company versus uh, your competitors? Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I, I look at, you know, Schedule A's much, much like, you know, merchant processing to, to the merchant. Everybody has it. Everybody's got a competitive right. offering. Right, right. 
so do we have yes we we've got it we've got lots of different front ends we've got lots of different you know you know different access to, to terminals so you and, and boarding tools so we've got all of that but really what separates us is, is our ability to become a true partner and it's the intangibles sure it you know it, it's We've been around for a long time. We've seen a lot. We've made a lot of mistakes, and we've paid the idiot tax on a number of things. So when you come here, you gain that experience. We, we give that to you for free. And we'll tell you, hey, that's a, that's, a, that's a great idea. We've seen it work in these different facets, and we'll open their eyes to, to maybe an angle they didn't see that, that could even expand the, the good idea they had. Or we can caution them that we've seen this, you know, 50 times it's failed 50 times so you might want to think long and hard about about bef- you know before you decide to do it right but at the same time we, we provide them with a lot of access to tools we'll provide them you know access to our marketing team that can help them with a rollout or a large presentation or anything they need so that they get a custom you know proposal out or or can take on a, a partnership deal that you know, maybe they wouldn't have been able to do, or if they would have done it, it might have been more amateur because they're they're not marketing experts. Right, sure. So we've got that. Um, we've got a legal team that they can rely on. So when they they're looking at entering into a contract or, or partnership uh, on a transaction, you've got a, a set of eyes they they can look at that and not be billing you at you know five or six hundred dollars sure. an hour. Um, but aside from that, it, it, it's the access to capital to to grow in whatever right. facet. So we've we, if people want to sell portfolios, we're we're eagerly always uh, there to to buy them. We're we're there to provide working capital for you know in the form of, of loans, so they don't have to sell if they're continuing to ramp up and, and grow their organization. We're there to to partner and invest. We've invested in and in taken minority stakes, uh, any size stake. To, to partner with with groups as, as well to to provide them with with capital for for growth. So really, what we try to do is we try to figure out whatever their big pain points are, and if we can, we try to take those off their plate and allow them to continue to do what they do best. This industry is unique in that there's literally thousands of different ways to be successful. Sure. There is not one recipe to success. Right. I've seen thousands of people be successful completely different manner each time right and what we do is we try to find the people who have identified one of those and then we give them the tools to scale and we show them how they can scale faster than they would have been able to do it on their own sure and candidly i I tell people they they a lot of times they'll do deals with us because we're providing them with a credit facility or or cash and i'll tell them all the same thing when we sit down a year from now, the least valuable thing I will have given you is the capital, the cash, because <laughs> right. it's that it's that experience that, that you get. You'll you'll get it with or without us. You know, it just it hurts. How long you know, will it take, and how much will it cost? Some of those bruises, yeah. Off. <laughs> right. You know, it's yeah. That's that's the the secret. So if you you know if you don't make that costly hundred thousand dollar mistake you still have those dollars to deploy somewhere else. Or if, you know, if you're made aware of an opportunity you didn't, you didn't know existed, poof, you just doubled up uh, on, on sales or, right. or a new revenue center. Yeah, that's so great. that's, that's really those, those intangibles are, are really where we, 
we sure. differentiate ourselves. And that's why our partners stay with us. Sure. Yeah. Well, Sam, I'm sure a lot of listeners are already, uh, you know, ready to pull over on the side of the road to write down some information. So why don't you give it to them? Where do they go if they want to learn more about, uh, you know, ISOs or agents that want to partner with TouchSuite? Uh, obviously, you can go to the, uh, you know, TouchSuite website, touch like you're touching something, suite like a hotel suite. So TouchSuite.com, you know, backslash agent will be the uh, a page that gives a little bit of uh, information on that. Um and that's you know obviously sure. a good place to to start, and we have a whole team who would be happy to reach out and, and and discuss those different opportunities. Awesome. Last question for you. I always ask to our uh, listeners that are the founders and entrepreneurs that have been successful. Um, you know, we have a lot of listeners that have three, four, five agents right now. They're doing 20, 30, 40 deals, and they really want to get their company to the next level. They want to be doing 100, 200, 300 plus, you know, a month uh, in, in new submissions. Is there anything that you've learned, maybe one tip or, or one thing that you, you know, a mistake you made or something that you could share that you think would really help them to be able to get, you know, make that leap to the next level? Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to people. And if you want to continue to scale, you're going to have to surround yourself with other talented, motivated people who share your vision. So by yourself, there's only so many hours in the day. That's why I ultimately left law. There's only so many, you know, you're selling hours. Right. And there's only so many hours in the day. Um, if you want to be able to scale, you need to be able to replicate yourself. And that means, you know, taking what you know and training other people to, to be able to do that. So, you know, that's the way you build the organization and then you'll have the infrastructure to handle and support more and more quality, you know, partners and employees. Yeah, you know, that's that's a really good point. I appreciate the advice on that because it's it's always been a struggle for me even and, and it's been interesting to kind of the trade off between, you know, obviously really good people cost more money. Um, and yes. so I, I think there's a temptation early on to say, well, if I, you know, I can hire this person, I'm not really excited about them, but you know, it's a lot cheaper than hiring this person. But over the years I found that, no, it's actually a lot more expensive to hire the cheaper person, right? <laughs> uh, your A players, you know, will cost you 20 to 40% more and they'll produce, you know, 20 times the results of a B player. Right. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. So, well, Sam, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you for having me on. Thank you. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Uh, you can add New York now to the list of states where merchants are allowed to surcharge credit card payments. Merchants there got the green light to start surcharging as the result of a settlement reached in a legal challenge to that state's anti-surcharging law. New York is one of 10 states, plus Puerto Rico, where surcharging credit card payments has been outlawed. But a group of merchants mounted a successful challenge to that prohibition in federal court back in 2013 complaining that it infringed on their free speech rights. The state appealed, and the case even made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Quote, in regulating the communication of prices rather than the prices themselves, Section 518 of New York's business laws 
regulate speech, the Supreme Court wrote. But it didn't make a final determination, opting instead to send the case back to a federal appeals court for further deliberations. Well, in January, the parties to that litigation filed papers with the appeals court asking the court to drop the case because they had come to an out-of-court agreement. If the court consents, and most legal experts expect that to happen, then merchants in New York can start start charging, provided they conspicuously disclose the cost. But here's the catch. The shelf price has to be the credit card price. Shelf prices cannot be marked up at the point of sale. The problem with the New York law, and the laws in other states that prohibit surcharging, is that they also expressly permit cash discounting. It's more than just semantics. As merchants claim, and now at least a half dozen federal court judges have agreed, surcharging and cash discounting are just two sides of the same coin. A U.S. District Court judge in New York put it this way, quote, Alice in Wonderland has nothing on Section 518 of the New York General Business Law. The appeals court considering the New York lawsuit weighed in on this late last year. It issued an opinion that said surcharging is okay provided all listed prices are what credit card customers pay, explained Jonathan Razzi, president of Cardex. Cardex, who uh, Jonathan we've interviewed here in the past, uh, his company Cardex, is a technology company that supports compliance surcharging programs. The appeals court reasoned that customers should not have to do the math prior to buying. In other words, they should not have to calculate the surcharge on a list price if they plan to pay by credit card. Other states where prohibitions on credit card surcharging are still on the books are Colorado, Connecticut, Kansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Oklahoma, and Puerto Rico. The surcharging laws in three other states have been struck down by federal courts and seem less likely to be further appealed given the stand the Supreme Court took. Those states are California, Florida, and Texas. Now, Razzi uh, described the appeals court decision in New York as a, quote, qualified victory. While the law will survive, it will be a much narrower, in a much narrower context than when the litigation began, he explained. Quote, now, no surcharge means no surprises, he said. So what do you think, James? Oh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I think um, I think it's actually a victory for cash discounting. Um, I do, too. Because to me, I feel like, you know, number one, I think the signage requirement makes it ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we've talked yeah. about this obviously before. We've talked about it. Sure. Right. But to me, if you're going to put both signs up anyway— um, mm-hmm. why on earth would you do a surcharge? Cause to me, that's a negative. So there's two big negatives with it in my mind. Number one, if you're going to put two signs up, you know, it's first of all going to be a negative because it's going to say, here is the regular price. And then here's the increased price if you pay with the credit card. So okay. that's a negative versus cash discounting where it would say, here's the regular price and here's the lower price you'll pay if you pay cash. So right. obviously it's potato, potato, but I mean, it, you know, it does make a difference emotionally and logically to the consumer when they see that it's like, Oh, look at that. How, what a nice merchant that's giving a me a discount. Idea. I get a discount if I pay with cash. Right. right. Versus look at this money grubbing merchant trying to get more from me, you know? So exactly. There's a big difference. Mm-hmm. The other big difference I think is actually confusion. I think that a sign that says this is the regular price and this is the credit card price. Well, what about check cards and debit cards? 
That's going to be uh-huh. very confusing. The consumer very is... Very confusing. I mean, are, right. what, are they going to put a disclaimer at the bottom of every single thing that says, you know, the regular price applies to check, cash, or check card and debit card? Like, you know, at some uh-huh. point it gets ridiculous where you can't print a thousand tags and labels, you know, that, that say all this. Um, the third big thought I had about it is, you know, larger merchants. I mean, Home Depot is not going to do this. Right. They're just not. So, um, so I think it's, I honestly, I think it's a win for cash discounting. Um, I think it's interesting because certainly the Supreme Court and all of the things that happened with this trial were a, a net positive for surcharging as far as making it compliant, legal, et cetera. But, you know, I mean, these restrictions just make it almost, you know, it's just so ridiculous that it's it's kind of a hollow victory in my opinion well yeah and i you know it, it just strikes me that the way the the appeals court wrote wrote this opinion is basically what they're saying is that you can do cash discounting right right exactly <laughs> i mean because if right. the shelf price has to be the credit card price that means you're discounting the cash price Exactly. Right. And so to me, it's, it's, you know, it's a bit, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, and again, I don't think we're done yet because I think that, Oh no! I think retail merchants are going to get together on this. And, and because, I mean, they already did, they, they filed an appeal, uh, that same group of merchants filed an appeal that said that the signage requirement affected their free speech rights. Um, right. And, and, And one of the other things about it to me, that's so blatantly obvious is that, you know, they said, you know, the consumer shouldn't have to do any calculation at the register to know what they're going to pay. Well, yes. no, that's really stupid because as long as they're going to buy more than one item, they're going to have to do calculations. Yeah. Like yes. they don't, you know, what do you think they come up there with their cart and while they were going, they added it up and they know that they currently owe 72.63. No, mm-hmm. they have no idea. No. They generally know like roughly how much they spent. And when they get up to the counter, if there's a sign up there and they see it, you know, that's no different. They're going to be like, oh, okay, it's a little bit more. They, they you know, the, right. consu- it's, the, the, the ruling, in my opinion, made it sound like these consumers are all geniuses that are, you know, able to do math in their head and add up all the things that they bought. And if they are, then, boy, the 3.99% won't be a challenge for that. You know, if you can add up everything in your cart on the way up to the counter, then adding 3.99% won't be a challenge for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I really, it, I agree with you. I think it's a, well, you know, like Jonathan said, it's a qualified victory in that, you know, it kind of gives the legal word premature to surcharging, but it seems to uh, to prod the market more towards cash discounting. Right. And I'll tell you the other thing, yeah. too. The, the other thing about it that we've talked about this before, but, you know, it really begs the question to me. I mean, I, I feel like they've opened up some really broad issues about cash discounting as well, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, what about a business that has a delivery fee? You know, yes, we talked about that in the past. Right. Right. I mean, technically, um, according to this law now, of course, again, this law is narrowly applied to these credit cards and surcharging. But I mean, really. Um, then the consumer doesn't know the final price because there's a delivery fee or there's a convenience fee or all of these other things that, that you know, businesses are, are clearly allowed to do. Um, well, well, yeah. you know, think about it in terms of, of sales tax, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I go to the grocery store. I load up all my groceries. Some of those groceries are taxed and some of those are not. Right. And my, you know, I'm, I'm calculating my head, okay, I only want to spend $150 this week, and okay, I'm near $150, but that, I know that when I get to the cash register, that it's going to be more than $150, because some of those right. items are going to be taxed at 6%. Right, and, and I mean, why, does the, why is the government allowed to do something that apparently is so confusing for the consumer that it's not practical? Well, then why is the government allowed to do it? 
Right. Just, you right. know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting development. But again, I think it goes back to cash discounting. And I think the real test of this is going to be when, you know, at some point, um, I think it's going to be 12 months from now or 18 months from now. But at some point, um, somebody is going to raise a ruckus about merchants doing cash discounting with the sign at the counter. And that's you know a, a you know a, a a program that's as compliant as possible. Maybe it's like a you know maybe it's a, a POS, a Mint POS or a Paytech where you know it literally has a service fee on every item and then it has the cash discount on every you know on when they pay cash and you know it's right. it's as compliant as it can be at the counter without changing all the prices on the on the shelves. Um, when that goes to court and they look at the Durban Amendment that says you know no brand or state or anything can prohibit a, a merchant from chart you know having a cash discount. You know, right. how are they going to interpret that? And, you know, I, it's really interesting, Patty. I don't know. It, it really made me even rethink a little bit my long-term vision of this, of like, I've been thinking mm-hmm. long-term, cash discounting is going away and it's going to go to surcharging. Right, but I think it's calling that into question. I know you it and is. I were talking about that just a few weeks ago when we were starting out the new year. Um, you know, that, you know, we, we I think one of your predictions was that surcharging was going to take off. And I got a feeling... No, I think cash discounting is going to be more prevalent. Yeah, I do too. I, and, it's, and for all the reasons that we've discussed. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there's some larger ISOs and, and acquirers that I think have jumped the gun by abandoning cash discounting in favor of yeah. surcharging. And I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just not quite ready yet, in my opinion. It's, uh, it, you know. Yeah, I agree. I don't think surcharging, as we put, as we would say, is quite ready for prime time. Yeah, I don't think so either. So, well, good stuff, uh, Patty. Uh, really good information. I think it'll, yeah. be, it'll be interesting to kind of follow along, and obviously, we'll you know I'm sure you'll keep us updated on the insiders report as we move forward with all this. Oh, of course. But uh, before we before we end today, I wanted to you know give you one more little piece of information sure. that came across my desk on consumers' um, use of cash. Okay. And uh, there's a new report out of the Pew Research Center um, that reveals that uh, nearly three out of ten adult Americans make no purchases using cash in a typical week. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, one of, I'm one of them, so. <laughs> and I know you are. That's one, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up, because you and I have talked about this a lot. And, right. You know, and it's interesting, because it's 29%, and that's up from 24% in 2015. Right. Now, me, at the same time, the share of consumers, of adults, indicating that all or nearly all of their weekly purchases are made with cash fell from 24% to 18% during that same period. Mm. That's a that's a big fall. Yeah. And of course I would say I would argue that part of that is as millennials right you know become more prevalent in the buying public. Now, you know, interestingly uh, and not I guess it was, I should say really not surprisingly um Pew found that demographics play a role. Of course. You know, lower income Americans are more likely to pay with cash. Uh, whereas higher income individuals are more apt to use, uh, not use cash. Right. Uh, the Pew research also found, as we said, um, you know, that more Americans are comfortable not carrying cash. Um, 53% of adults said they try to make sure they always have cash on hand compared to 60% back in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Americans, and as we said, Americans under the age of 50 are far more likely than their elders to say they don't worry about carrying cash. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, the Pew study did not go into when and how consumers most use cash, but a 2016 Federal Reserve study did. And not surprisingly, that study found that cash is more likely to be used for smaller dollar purchases. Right. The average value of a cash transaction in 2016, the Fed said, was $22, compared to $112 for the average non-cash wow, transaction. Wow, that's crazy. Talk about a stat Isn't you that, could use in the field if uh, somebody doesn't accept credit card. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that, I mean, I think that's a great yeah, stat for our, for our listeners to, to you know, grab onto. Uh, and here's the other thing, which kind of plays into the cash discounting thing. The average consumer carries about $57 in cash on them at any given time, the Fed said. Hmm. So, you know, think That's about it. You only, you know, and I know, I mean, you and I have talked about this. You almost never have any cash. <laughs> no, you know what's funny? I, uh, I just got back from uh, Phoenix on a business trip uh, doing some consulting and stuff, and um, uh, on the trip back, I had my, uh, my dad with me. I brought him along, and... Uh, uh-huh. You know, he was really, you know, older generation, you know, uh, hey, make sure you have some cash on you, you know, for you got to tip somebody right. or whatever. Oh, yeah. So I got out a couple hundred bucks in cash and I'm just, you know, carrying this cash around. And it's so funny. I've actually gotten to the point. I think a lot of consumers are like me where I, I actually have a, 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 um, a reverse kind of emotional response. I actually get nervous having cash because number one, because you're afraid of getting, I'm afraid of, off. right. And, and I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to track it. I don't remember what I spent it on. Yes. It doesn't automatically load into my banking software that I have. Um, right. you know, and so it was so funny. I got back and I still had like 140 bucks or something. <laughs> and the very first day I get back, uh, Christina says to me, James, you know, I need to run over to the store and you know, whatever. So I was like, oh, I'll go with you. So we go into the store and it was like, you know, a hundred and you know, $5 or something. And I said, Oh, uh-huh. I said, please let me pay for this with cash. And then, um, and I, I literally handed the, the clerk the, the, I didn't even count it. I handed the clerk the whole 140 and the clerk was like counting it and like, like, you know, about to hand me back my extra 20, you know what I mean? And cause right, I, I right. never, and I said, give it to her. And I, I had her take the, the change. I'm like, Oh, I feel so much better now. I don't have any cash in my wallet. That's so much better. <laughs> so it's funny how I think, uh, my generation and, and younger is we're, we're getting away from cash to the point of, we almost look at it as a negative to carry it. Cause it's like, it's not, it's not being tracked. We don't know what's happening with it. It could get stolen. You know, we're, we're more concerned about it. I think. Yeah, I think that's that's the case, you know. And it's also the, the the notion that you all, you know, your your adult lives have been more plastic oriented. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Um, like people like your dad and myself. I mean, you know, getting a credit card was a big deal when we were young. Right, right. Now everybody has a credit card who can, you know, and they use them more and more. Um, but. Uh, you know, I, I'm probably still going to be one of those people. I always, I, I'm, I'm right on line with the Fed. I always have about fifty or sixty dollars in cash, hmm. and it's mostly, you know, just. And I, I admit, there's it can be a hassle because I don't track it as well. You right. know, right. But you know, it's just there's little things that it's good for. Um, you know, for me, I much would. Re- I, I know that I'm probably in a minority, but if I'm going to a fast food place, I would rather not put it on my credit card. Right, right, sure. There's just something about, oh, I'm going to consume this in five minutes and I'm going to pay for it a month from now. Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's kind of where I go with it, you know. But, sure, sure. But well, I good. think, you wow, know, really good stuff. that's changing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. I Yeah, and I think um, I think for, you know, the younger generation and, you know, myself, like, I look at it as, like, uh, my check card or debit card, That's that is cash to me. Sure. 
right? Sure. So that's why I, I use I, it, the quick service or and whatever. And I agree yeah. with that. But I also am one of those people that there's a there's several uh, gas stations around here that are not EMD compliant yet. Oh, sure. That's, yeah, definitely. And that, to me, is a big deal. I just don't want to use my debit card at, at, at the gas station if it's not going to be protected. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow, really good stuff yeah. today, Patty. A chock full of uh, great information for our listeners today. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Welcome to Questions from the Field. Today, I am going to talk about something that I want to talk about. (laughs) Not a specific question I got from an agent, but boy, this is something that's so important. I call it the job test. Now, most salespeople, when they get into merchant services sales, they treat it like a hobby and they want it to pay them like a business. It doesn't work that way. If you get into the merchant services industry and you treat it like a job, then it will pay you like a job. Eventually, after several years, three, four years of really hard work, it will start to pay you like a business, meaning it'll pay you a lot. And then after seven, eight, nine years, then you can treat it like a hobby. Okay? So you got to get the order right. All right? Now, let me be really specific of what I'm talking about. If you want to be successful in merchant services sales, here is what you have to do. It's very simple. Here's what you have to do. In the morning, you have to get up, and then you got to get dressed, and then you got to get in your car, and then you got to go out, and you got to prospect, or you got to get on the phone, and you got to prospect. That's it. You can't come home before 5 o'clock. You got to work from 9 to 5. Now, you don't work two days a week or three days a week or four days a week. You work 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. You say, well, James, what if I have stuff going on? Well, what if you had a job and you had stuff going on? What would you do then? Would you get fired? No. You know what you would do? You'd find a way to go to work, right? Or you would take a sick day or you would take a personal day or you would take a vacation day. So here's what I'm going to challenge every single person listening right now. If you are not making $10,000 a month in residual in the merchant services industry right now, last month, if you didn't make $10,000 in residual in the merchant services industry, meaning you're not ready to treat it like a hobby yet, okay, because it's not paying you like a business yet. It's still paying you less than a really good job. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Sit down with your spouse, significant other, family members, whoever's involved, and sit down and make a set of procedures just like a job. Sit down with people in your family that have a job. Seriously, I'm not joking. Like people in your family that get paid, you know, a $40,000 a year salary job or something like that, sit down with them and ask them, how much vacation time do you have? How much vacation time did you have when you first started your job? Well, the first year I had 
five days of vacation or I had 10 days of paid vacation. How many sick days do you have? I had, you know, four sick days. I had this many, you know, right? All the numbers, get them down, okay? Maybe give yourself a couple extra days, whatever, right? But write it down and then you got to track it and you got to stay true to that. You have a job. Now, let me tell you something, a big secret about merchant sales. Everybody wants to get into it because it's so, oh my goodness, you can make so much money. But let me tell you something. If you do not treat this business like a job, you will be looking for a job. Let me say that again. If you do not treat this business like a job, you will be looking for a job. Why? Because you're going to fail in merchant sales. You got to treat it like a job. You got to work nine to five. Now, let me give one last bit of advice to ISOs, managers, people like that. Let me give you a really, really, really good piece of advice that will save you so much time and aggravation. Only work with agents who are going to treat this business like a job. Okay? You don't need these people that are like, they have three other things going on and they're like, yeah, I think I could, you know, I think I could put two hours a day into this. Tell them that's great. Uh, let me give you the name of my competitors so you can go work with them. Why? Because that'll waste their time. You don't need to waste your time. You work with people that are going to treat this business like a job and then it's going to make, you know, they're going to make a lot of sales because this business is really not that hard. I think there's a lot of griping in our industry about, you know, oh my goodness, it's so hard and so competitive, blah, 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 blah. You know what? If you know how to sell and you're out there walking into businesses or calling businesses and working for eight hours a day, not 16 hours, not 12 hours, eight hours a day, you're going to be successful. That's it. End of story. If you know how to sell and you're going to prospect and work for eight hours a day, you are going to be successful in this business. Are there people that are not cut out for sales in general? Of course. Are there people who want to go sell merchant services but don't want to learn anything about it? Of course. Obviously, these are people who are not going to be successful. That's a no-brainer. But as long as you're following those minimum requirements, if you get out and work, you're going to be successful. So what does that mean as a manager, as an ISO owner? That means you want to find people that are going to work. They're going to work the business. They're going to do what's necessary to treat this like a job to make it happen. So remember this. If you treat this business like a job, it will eventually pay you like a business and then you can treat it like a hobby. And also remember that if you don't treat this business like a job, you are going to be looking for one. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.